Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Stein, founder and CEO of Purely Elizabeth. And this is Live Purely with Elizabeth, featuring candid conversations about how to thrive on your wellness journey. This week's guest is Dr. Akil, a Harvard-trained physician who practices integrative medicine, blending his conventional medical expertise with holistic approaches, including functional medicine and Ayurveda. After completing his family medicine residency training at Stanford University, he graduated from a fellowship in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Weil. A widely known speaker and educator, Dr. Akil is the author of The Paleovetic Diet, and his newest book that just launched, The Tiger Protocol, an integrative five-step program to treat and heal your autoimmunity. In this episode, we dive into the foundation of autoimmune disease, what causes it, why it's so prevalent today, and why an integrative approach is one of the best ways to heal the body. There are actually hundreds of types of autoimmune disease that affect an estimated 25 million people in the US. It's the fastest growing category of disease. Dr. Akil shares his personal health journey and years of working with patients, which led to his five-step healing protocol that works to address the root cause of immunity instead of treating just the symptoms. We talk about prevention, detoxing, some of the best foods and lifestyle shifts you need to make so that you can heal your body. Dr. Akil was such a wealth of knowledge. I absolutely love his approach. Keep listening to learn more. If you haven't had the chance to try our grain-free granolas yet, head on over to Walmart to now find them in the gluten-free healthy living aisle and select Walmart locations. Our grain-free granolas have crunchy clusters of nuts, superfood seeds, and creamy nut butters, all baked with organic coconut oil and sweetened with coconut sugar. They are gluten-free, paleo, and keto certified. Use the link in the notes section to find Purely Elizabeth products at a Walmart store near you. Dr. Akil, welcome to the podcast. It's truly such an honor to have you on today, and I'm so excited to talk all things about your latest book. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Pleasure to be here. So we always start the podcast with your personal wellness journey, and I know for you, there was a story on your own health, but I'd love to get into the background of really what led you into integrative medicine, melding that with Ayurveda, which I'm a huge fan fan also of the Ayurvedic <clears throat> philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know, integrative medicine is a branch of regular medicine that combines holistic and alternative therapies together with conventional medicine. So I think it's the medicine of the future. And in terms of how I got into it, it was through my own illness, which was very severe. When I was in medical school, I developed this mystery illness that gave me severe chronic pain, where I couldn't sit up or use a computer, severe fatigue, weight loss. And then I had to stop my training because wow. it was re- I was doing all the conventional treatments and there's really not improving. So during my year off of school, I went through a process of like discovery, learning about, you know, Ayurveda and holistic therapies and diet. And it was really seeing some integrative doctors that helped turn my health around and that I felt better than ever before. And so I saw the power of that approach and then decided I really wanted to train in that. Do the I did a fellowship with Andrew Weil, who's a big mentor for me. And yeah, I've just been practicing ever since. Wow. Amazing. So can you explain the difference between integrative medicine and functional medicine? 
<clears throat> yes. So functional medicine looks at optimizing the function of different organ systems, and they use specialized lab testing, like stool testing or saliva testing. And integrative medicine is broader. So it includes functional medicine, but it also includes other systems like Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, and so forth. So integrative medicine is a bigger, broader category. Okay, wonderful. So you have had a practice where you are melding the two together today. What are the big themes, I would say, just from an Ayurveda perspective that you're bringing in to your practice? And and maybe touch on what that is Mm -hmm. at a high level for people. Yeah, so absolutely. So in my practice, I see a lot of patients with chronic diseases of all types, especially autoimmune disease. And I think what the strength of Ayurveda is, is the emphasis on diet. So really using food as medicine, and using spices, herbs, lifestyle, you know, all these natural things that really have the power to shift our health. So you have this thriving practice where as you started, you were going to the root cause to figure out your own health issues. And that's something that you certainly Mm -hmm. practice today. And Mm -hmm. I, I suppose that it's become clear that autoimmune disease is a huge area where it's on the rise. There's patients who come to you and so many questions surrounding that. So what was sort of the aha moment Mm -hmm. getting into researching and writing your latest? So with my practice, it really came to develop and grow organically. I started seeing a lot of patients with autoimmune disease. And as they got better, they referred their friends and it just grew until it became like a specialty of mine. And Many patients with autoimmune disease and other chronic diseases are looking for holistic solutions, looking for diet changes, what they can do in their lifestyle. And usually their regular doctor, you know, in medicine, we tell them, eat whatever you want, and there's not much effect there. So people are hungry for these additional tools. And so as I saw how effective they were, then I decided to put them together into this protocol and then eventually the book. And I suppose, too, a big part of it, not only are conventional doctors saying, hey, eat this, but it's also, let's just take a pill to try to solve it, which doesn't solve it, right? Or, you know, some other kind of Band-Aid that isn't getting to the root cause, which I love your approach here, which we'll get into, but it's really peeling so many layers back and even more Mm -hmm. layers back than I think to the earlier point about functional medicine, which might Mm -hmm. be starting at the gut, like you're going deeper and deeper than even the gut. So excited to get into all of that. But let's kind of start with laying the foundation for what is the current state of autoimmune disease in America? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we dealing Mm -hmm. with here? What are we talking about? Yeah. So autoimmune disease is the fastest growing category of disease in the world and in the US. Some diseases have grown by like 500% in the, the past just 20 years. And it now affects anywhere from one in five to one in six Americans, depending on the study. Um, There's more than 100 different types of autoimmune disease like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, inflammatory bowel disease. There's a lot of different diseases, but the mechanisms are the same, the same kind of five root causes. And autoimmune disease disproportionately affects women. So 80% of wow. uh, yeah, 80% of those with autoimmune disease are women. It's a really big factor, but because it's so prevalent now, both men and women are experiencing very high rates of autoimmune disease. 
And I guess even taking a step back, what is the definition of autoimmune disease? Yes, great point. So autoimmune disease is basically where your immune system, which is supposed to defend your body against disease and infections, turns on itself. So it starts to mistakenly attack your own cells, your own tissues and cause damage. So that autoimmune kind of attack then leads to autoimmune disease. And as you said, there's a hundred different types. So it yeah. manifests yeah. in many different ways under this broader umbrella. Yes, it all depends what's the final target. So what is the ultimate like tissue or organ that's being damaged? But uh, going upstream, you know, it all starts with those five root causes disrupting the immune system. And then the manifestation could look a lot of different ways. So one of the things that I thought was super interesting in your book, which is an integrative approach to healing, but as I read it, it's also like, this is an integrative approach to prevention. And one of the things I thought that was super interesting was how long it takes to develop or how long it can take to develop an autoimmune disease, which that was like very eye-opening to me to hear what you're doing today is it may be in your body already and like you might not have the symptoms for X amount of Mm -hmm. time. So you can talk a little bit about that process. What? Yes. Yeah. Excellent question. So autoimmune disease, most people don't realize is a very slow process. It can develop over 10, 20, 30 years. And the way we know this is there are actually studies where they find the initial blood markers of early autoimmunity, sometimes 25 years before a patient is diagnosed with the disease. These are studies that are done in the military where they just collect blood all the time and they have these longstanding, (laughs) you know, the data, but it applies to other populations too. And so I, I think you're exactly right. The same things that treat autoimmune disease are also preventative. So addressing these root causes, following the TIGER protocol for like a healthy person will prevent their development of autoimmune disease. And also many times the very earliest stages could just be mild symptoms like, you know, feeling tired or having slight gut issues or, you know, some aches and pains. And then in that situation, doing this protocol can hopefully help people feel better, reduce inflammation, and then prevent the progression of any of anything into autoimmune disease. So is that something that in your practice that you suggest to get blood work done to see if you have any of those bio- biomarkers for an autoimmune disease that's could be happening in 20 years from now? Is that No, no, it's still an area of active research. And yeah. so we're not there yet in terms of like, you know, having that perfect blood test to know in the future. So I think the better approach is to, yeah, just automatically start addressing all these factors, you know, that impact not only autoimmune disease, but, you know, heart disease, diabetes, all the the main killers of of people. So I think it's it's a good, healthy way to start living. And that's more what I emphasize. Okay, great. One of the other things I thought was a really interesting point was talking about epigenetics versus genetics when it comes to autoimmune and something that's, I think, a newer term for a lot of people. So if you could first tell us about what epigenetics means and then how that relates to autoimmune. Yeah, sure. So the genetics are basically what's determined by your genes, your DNA that you get from your parents. And then epigenetics is how those genes are expressed. 
So a lot of things which we didn't know before we are learning can have a huge impact on how the genes are expressed, like your gut bacteria, like your diet, like stress levels. And that is a, probably a more powerful effect than genetics. And we know this through studies showing that, you know, with autoimmune disease, more of the risk really comes from epigenetics than genetics. So that's, you know, both empowering and also can be a little bit scary because then you realize, you know, all of these things matter that you are doing every day in terms of choices you make. But the data is clear that epigenetics is more important than genetics for autoimmune disease, although genetics does matter. But that I think is an empowering message for people. Yeah, I think that's hugely empowering. And I think in a world right now where we're learning so much, there's so much more research and there's so much more information about our health. It is nice to not just think like, okay, I'm predisposed to this because my mom had X, Y, and Z. And really that we are our own best health advocates and what we put on the end of our fork every day and Mm -hmm. do every day matters so much. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So as we talk about more research. I'm curious to hear how long did it take to really research and put the book together? But then my question was going to be, what was Mm -hmm. most interesting or surprising for you Mm -hmm. really putting Mm -hmm. together your book? Um, Yeah. You know, I've been practicing now about 20 years and in the past 10 years, I've really focused more on autoimmune disease and been fine tuning the protocol. And then the book took about three years to write, you know, uh, read over like a thousand research studies and tried to put it, put them all, you know, together. One thing that was really surprising was this concept that I came across called neuroplasticity and neuroplasticity just refers to the power of the brain to change. Because in medical school, I was taught that, you know, you're born with a certain number of neurons, you can never grow new brain cells, they just die as you get older. But the newer research is that that's not true, you can actually change your brain, you can transform your brain cells, there's a lot of powerful ways to do that mind-body techniques, imagery, visualization, meditation, yoga. So I think it was really exciting to to see that because again, my whole goal is empowering people. And this concept also really is a very positive one. So it's similar in the same vein as epigenetics of being able to really take your health in your own hands. What are some Mm -hmm. of those other ways in which we can grow our brain cells? Um, Yeah. So I think the probably the best studied one is meditation, which has been shown to help with growing both the gray matter and the white matter, which are two, the two different types of brain cells. And then also meditation helps grow your hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that controls stress and deals with stress. So meditation, that's why it helps you manage stress better because literally your brain is getting bigger. The part of the brain that handles stress is growing in size. So I think those are some of the pretty exciting things about meditation. I love hearing that because I think it's so easy to think that meditation is just this like woo-woo concept out here that I don't know if that means anything for people, but then when you hear the science behind it and the facts, it's pretty empowering. So in this study, what, in order to really have that neuroplasticity and grow, Mm -hmm. does that mean we need to meditate? What's the protocol, I guess, is that every day for 10 minutes? What is, what does Mm -hmm. that really break down to? 
Yeah. So in the studies, many of them look at mindfulness meditation, which is uh, one of the, like there's several different types of meditation. So in my book, I teach people like five different techniques for meditation. So you can see what appeals to you. And in terms of the, the neuroplasticity, about eight weeks is the, the length of time that it takes to make those brain changes uh, permanent. And in the studies, they were only practicing about 15 minutes a day. So it doesn't have to be a super long meditation, but consistent practice over a couple of months will, will have huge impact. How about for you personally, what do you do? Yeah. So that's, it's a big part of my routine because I've been meditating for, you know, for many years and I try to do at least 10 minutes a day. I use different apps that I, I enjoy. And What's your favorite um, app? yeah, I like this one called Smiling Mind, which is, it's from a nonprofit in Australia that is more mindfulness-based. And I really like, they have short, you know, three-minute meditation, five-minute, like if I don't have time to do the full 10 minutes, I'll do a three-minute session. And even that makes a subtle difference. Wonderful. Okay. So let's walk through your TIGER protocol. I love also the acronym because it makes it super easy to remember, but so let's Mm -hmm. walk through what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, TIGER is an acronym and it covers the five root causes for immune health, which are toxins, infections, gut health, eating, and rest and rebalance. So going through each of those, I thought maybe I could just mention like one food that I highlight, you know, the whole protocol is based on food, because I think food is medicine and diet is really the foundation. So with tea toxins, I think one food that's underappreciated is the beet greens, which is the leafy tops of the beetroot. So that's the richest food source of something called betaine, which is very important for the liver. And the liver is the main organ that does detoxification. So beet greens have a unique ability to really support your detox capacity. And you can, even if you cook them, you know, that doesn't take away their benefits. Yeah. So we love having beet greens. You just have to find the beets with the tops attached and then cook both. You know, that's kind of what we do. And then for infections, so in Ayurveda, we use spices a lot because spices are really medicinal. So turmeric is really well known for its anti-inflammatory effect, but it's a very good antimicrobial. It gets rid of bad bacteria, yeast, um, you know, parasites. And in Ayurveda, it's used a lot for that purpose. So I would just encourage people to use turmeric you know, find ways to incorporate it. You can have golden milk, you can incorporate, you can cook rice in it, you can do all kinds of different things. And I think it's more about the cumulative dose, like over your lifetime, how much turmeric can you get? So the more, the better just in your, in your daily cooking. I made a smoothie this morning, knowing that you Mm -hmm. were coming on and I put turmeric in it. Yeah, Great. (laughs) But I put probably a teaspoon. Is that too little? No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I think if you put a pinch of black pepper in there as well, that there was a study that showed that that boosts the absorption of turmeric by 2000%. So that's why many Indian curries, they have black pepper and turmeric, and then um, some fat is beneficial too for absorption. So either ghee or MCT oil or coconut oil. Perfect. And then for the G, the gut component, I uh, I really like collagen powder for a couple of reasons. One is that the collagen is very healing for the gut. It heals something called leaky gut, which is increased intestinal permeability. Often we recommend bone broth for that purpose, but a lot of people can't have it or don't have access. But collagen is a good substitute, you know, it's powder. 
easily dissolves in water, and then excellent source of protein. So many of my patients don't get enough protein. I know that this is a common issue you're aware of. So collagen powder is a great way to get a little extra protein in your day and also help heal your gut. So I think that is very important. I love the point about collagen because I think so many of us just think about collagen as protein mm -hmm. and really knowing that there's so much more benefit to it from a gut perspective and healing is so important. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then with E, yeah, in terms of eating, there's many foods that are healing for the gut. I think one that's not well emphasized is prebiotic foods. So a prebiotic food is different from a probiotic food, like a fermented food, which has actual bacteria in it. Prebiotic food has no bacteria, but it feeds the 40 trillion bacteria in your gut, you know, microbiome that are really critical for many functions. Uh, like your, you know, immune system, longevity, inflammation, your brain health. So I think that the prebiotic foods are really important. So I spend about 50 pages of the book talking about like all the different types of prebiotics that are there in the diet, uh, resistant starch, um, arabinoxalans, polyphenols, SQ sugars. And then I go through all the top foods for each of those. So I'll just give an example. So in the category of nuts, chestnuts are actually the, the mm. highest source of prebiotic. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to, you know, all other nuts are healthy too. I mean, I have almonds and, you know, walnuts regularly, but uh, chestnuts were shown in the research to have the highest levels of a kind of prebiotic called polyphenols. So I wanted to include a lot of those kind of surprising things where yeah. it's not a food you might think is really healthy, you know, just you have them over the holidays, but chestnuts are very good for the gut bacteria. So that's part of these, the whole prebiotic foods. I, I want to kind of teach people about that aspect. <clears throat> and then finally, R, yeah, so there's not a food necessarily that comes to mind, but R is really about rest and the mind-body connection. And we spoke about meditation, but I know that's not for everyone, you know, doesn't appeal to everyone. So many other things have been shown to be helpful, whether it's um, psychotherapy, counseling, gratitude practices, forgiveness practices, prayer in your spiritual community. And some people prefer more movement-based like yoga or tai chi or qigong. So find something that works for you in terms of stress and then try to practice it regularly. Really getting yourself into that parasympathetic state. Yes, exactly. Which is not easy for some of us. <laughs> yes, yes. Smoothies are one of our favorite meals or snacks here at Purely Elizabeth. But you know what we love even better? A smoothie bowl. That's why we've partnered with Smoothie King to add our organic original granola on top of their new smoothie bowls for the perfect salty sweet crunch. All six new smoothie bowls features an acai or pitaya base with a variety of fresh ingredients such as locally sourced fruit, dried coconut, goji berries, honey, or peanut butter, and our granola. It's super easy to order directly through the Smoothie King app or you can order in-store starting April 6th. Can't wait for you to try it. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Okay, so a couple of questions jumping back up to toxins because I, mm -hmm. I yes. kind of as we started, I love how you are peeling back the layers. And in my mind, I'm looking at this sort of like a pyramid. I don't know if that's the right way to look at it, but you know, mm -hmm. really having to address the toxins and infections first before jumping to yes. the next pieces of yes. the protocol. So 
we obviously live in a world with a lot of toxins around us and yep. some of them we can control, some of them we can't control. What yeah. are the worst toxins that we should be aware of where we do have some control, right? Yeah, no, great question. So I think toxins, we're not talking about like the obvious toxins like smoking or asbestos or, you know, things that you know are like really severely bad for you. Uh, we're talking about low level exposure to toxins that all of us get through our food and water and air, things like heavy metals, you know, lead, mercury, pesticides like glyphosate and others. And then other chemicals are things like uh, PFCs, which are found in plastics. And um, that's why filtering your drinking water is very important because the low levels of these uh, uh, in the environment can get into the drinking water. Um, so I think a simple tip is to Eat organic whenever possible, because uh, then you're greatly reducing those um, pesticide levels. And then with the seafood, that's often the biggest source of mercury. So I tell people to have what's called the smash fish, which is uh, salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Those are the lowest in mercury and highest in omega-3s, which are what make fish so healthy. And then one tip that also is very surprising to people is that a way to reduce toxins in the house, because indoor air is a actually big contributor to issues for some people. One is you can get house plants that they, they do filter the air. And then second is if you leave your shoes at the front door, that actually reduces a lot of the toxins that can be stuck to the bottom of the shoes that studies have shown things like heavy metals and pesticides and bad bacteria are found there. So if you don't track them all around the house, that is also better. What about a couple of dogs running around your house? How bad is that? Yes. There's a lot of benefits to having the dogs. You know, I think that uh, in our modern world, we have been too sterilized and, you know, too much on sanitized living. And of course, the COVID pandemic made that, sure. made that worse. So I think we've got too much to that extreme. And we really need to be exposed to more bacteria. So one way to do that is having animals and dogs, cats, you know, um, studies show that reduces the risk of like allergies in kids and, you know, through helping the immune system by exposing you to it, like new different bacteria. Plus there's all the uh, mental health benefits of having a dog, which are huge. Absolutely. I can attest to that. Yes. Yes. So given all the toxins that we have in our environment, you obviously mentioned yep. the beet greens is a great way to detox the liver. What mm -hmm. are some of your other favorite ways to detox the body? I know in Ayurveda, I've done yes. a Panchakarma a couple of times, oh. which is obviously a much bigger wow. thing, but yes. that is certainly in Ayurveda about cleansing with the seasons, et cetera. So curious to hear- yes from your perspective, how we should be thinking about the best ways to detox the body and not detox mm -hmm. in, in a negative way, I guess, but just making yes. sure we're clear. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes we overlook the basics when it comes to detox, which is that hydration is very important. So just drink, most people don't drink enough water. So drinking like plenty of water, half your body weight in ounces is what I tell people per day. That is really helpful. And then digestion and elimination. So having like regular bowel movements, you know, we talk about 
poop a lot in integrated medicine. So if you, that's the main way your body clears toxins is through the gut. And so if you're having issues, not having healthy elimination, then you're really impairing the detox pathways. So uh, I think we should not ignore those kind of basic steps. And then in addition, yeah, there's so many foods that are helpful for detox. I think the all of the cruciferous vegetables are especially powerful. Broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. And then I'm a big fan of this compound called sulforaphane, which is found in the broccoli sprouts. And broccoli sprouts can have like 100 times the sulforaphane as broccoli. And sulforaphane is something that helps with detox, helps with inflammation, helps your brain. There's uh, so many benefits to that. And then one other food I'll mention is these algae like chlorella and spirulina are real, are real superfoods in terms of the ability to help us detox and also all the nutrients they contain and easy to throw into a smoothie. So that's the way that I try to get them. Well, it's funny because last week reading the book, I was at my local Whole Foods and they uh, had broccoli microgreens, which is that oh, the same? Oh yeah, that's as... it. That's the same. Yeah. Okay. So I bought them. I've been incorporating them all week. I was curious to hear A, how much to be eating and then B, is it okay to cook them or should they be raw? Ideally raw. Yeah. That's because with, figured. yeah, yes. Because sulforaphane is damaged by heat. So you like, even with the cruciferous vegetables, you don't want to boil them or overcook them. So if you're lightly steaming them just enough where you can eat them, that's harmless, but I would not cook any kind of sprouts. For serving size, yeah, it does vary a lot depending on where the sprouts were grown. And, you know, these are factors that actually do have a big impact. So just trying to get organic, that does help. And then typically does not have to be a big amount. So like a couple tablespoons of sprouts per day is what I recommend. Oh, great. I was putting yeah. like a cup of it on my, oh, on my wow. salad. Well, okay. well <laughs> you're getting even more benefit. That's great. That's great. I knew I was feeling good this yeah. week for a reason. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so switching over to the gut and improving gut health, let's just touch on that a bit. So a big component, if you could talk about how leaky mm-hmm. gut and dysbiosis play such a big factor into our overall gut health, but obviously into mm-hmm. autoimmune disease and just what that connection is. Yeah, absolutely. So leaky gut is where your gut wall, which is normally supposed to be like a impermeable wall that does not allow things to slip through. If you start um, losing some bricks in the wall where you're getting these, you know, small microscopic holes, then things can slip into your blood through from the gut that are not supposed to like bacteria or undigested food or toxins. And then your immune system is constantly kind of surveilling your um, blood. And if it starts seeing all these like foreign compounds, then it will start reacting, you know, producing what are called antibodies starting to rev up into a higher activation. And then that's the first step in autoimmune disease for many people. So they've also found in these very early stages before a person has full-blown autoimmune disease, they show signs of this intestinal permeability and leaky gut. Um, so I do think that's uh, that's a very important factor. So one of the big components of gut health and eating you talk about is microbial diversity. Yes. And I got a lot of questions about how we give our gut a more diverse Is it eating a wide variety of plant foods? Is it feeding it more prebiotics? 
what is what is the best protocol for that? Yeah, I think it's actually both because we do know when they've studied older populations, like anthropologists have studied that um, our diversity in the microbiome has really declined a lot, you know, in the last uh, like few hundred years. And the reason why diversity is important is that's the main way that uh, we measure resilience of the the microbiome. Um, so just like in a rainforest where you have so many different, you know, healthy species in the ecosystem, the gut is the same way. So that if you lose one or two, then other bacteria can step in to fill those roles. And diversity is also the key factor in longevity, because they've studied like people, you know, people who are over 100 years old, and uh, they tend to have like much more diverse bacteria than other elderly people. So diversity is very important. Our ancestors had much more diversity. And then a couple of ways to really boost diversity. One is that um, food has different fibers that feed different bacteria. So the more variety you can have, the better. I tell people to aim for about at least 40 different plant foods a week. And that can include spices. So, you know, if you have 10 different spices, that counts. Um, a green apple counts differently from a red apple. And so if you're, you know, kind of keeping an eye on that, it's not that hard to, to get there mindfully. And our ancestors, you know, ate up to like 100 different plant foods wow. a, a week. So we don't need to get to that level, but at least going from, I think the average American eats like eight. I was um, going to say, know, we're yeah. so stuck on like probably just eating yes. the same thing and yes, exactly. rinsing and repeating. So, right. So just trying to, you know, get foods you don't normally choose in the grocery store, get, you know, being as adventurous and, and also some, many of these taste really good. So getting more plant foods and then Two other ways to improve diversity. One is fermented foods. So I do talk about that a lot. Things like sauerkraut and yogurt, they do increase your diversity and reduce inflammation. Um, and then finally, I think prebiotic foods are really underemphasized. So one of the main categories is polyphenols and getting, so the other prebiotic foods, like for example, there are inulin rich foods and inulin is also very beneficial prebiotic. It's found in garlic, onions, artichoke, Jerusalem artichoke, asparagus, leeks are a good source. So sometimes people don't tolerate some of those foods. They might get gas or bloating or reactions to some of those foods, but the polyphenol foods are the best tolerated. So even people with gut issues, even people with food intolerances can usually tolerate um, polyphenol rich foods like berries are a great source. So we all hear, you know, blueberries are great, which they are, but in my research, I found that the best fruit with the highest polyphenol content is elderberry. So getting that black elderberry, you know, we make like a tincture from elderberries and just drink that. That's a good way. And blueberries are good too as well. And then in terms of nuts and seeds, chestnut we talked about, and then ground flaxseed is also really good. That's a great source of um, prebiotics and also other beneficial compounds like lignans. And then when it comes to vegetables, yeah, of course, leafy greens are are very, very high, but a um, couple foods you may not know about, capers, those small kind of circular vegetables, those are very high in, in polyphenols and, oh, wow. um, and olives, both black olives and green olives are very high in polyphenols. 
Well, I think it's interesting because it could sound like very daunting to say, try to have 40 different types of vegetables or plants throughout your Mm. week. But Mm. it's also a nice kind of spin to help you naturally crowd out bad things in your Mm. diet. If you're just focused on, hey, let's add in more and more of the good stuff, it naturally would crowd out some of the not so beneficial foods in one's diet. So it's a nice way to kind of reframe that thinking. Absolutely. I think that works better for people because sometimes there is a role for elimination and taking things out, but then adding more things in that are health promoting and healing is something, you know, all of us can do. Yeah. So in terms of actually, that's a great segue into eliminating in your protocol, you have the phase one where you're eliminating certain Mm -hmm. foods. And I actually had two friends last week who were both going through a six week kind of anti candida diet. And they had asked me, they were like, is it okay if I had like one day that I, you know, cheated and I had a grain and I was like, I think you should probably stick with the protocol. But my question is for you during your phase one of the protocol, like, is it okay if you have something once or do you really need to be strict and not have anything in your diet? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think that with the diet for most people, it's really a cumulative pattern. So the total you know, number of uh, foods you're eating in a week, for example. And so if you had one day when you had uh, foods that were not on that diet, I don't think that's going to completely like invalidate or- You don't you know, need to like start the six weeks yeah. over. Again. Yeah, no, no. I don't think so. Yeah, because, uh, you know, life happens, it's hard enough to be following a restrictive diet. But I don't think it's, it's harmful, like, you know, if you accidentally or without a choice have to vary from it, it does vary, you know, for the people who are the most sick, like the ones that I see in my practice that are on like multiple medications, and, you know, their gut is needing a lot of help, then they do have to be very strict, because uh, they'll feel it like if they eat something that they, you know, is not Uh, agreeing with them, they'll feel really bad. And that usually motivates them to be very strict. But if you're not in that kind of, you know, severe state, then the cumulative pattern is generally what I look at and recommend. Okay. I'm curious to also hear your viewpoint on gluten-free versus grain-free and Mm -hmm. where your mentality is for, for most people, obviously there's no one size fits all, but generalized. How do you feel about that? So I think that, you know, gluten-free is healthy for most people. I think if you don't have any issues with gluten, that's fine. But in autoimmune disease, studies have shown that um, people are more likely to react to gluten, to react to dairy. So I think gluten-free is a good option in that case. And then with the grain-free, yeah, it's a much smaller subset of people that I find have to go like completely grain-free. They're the ones that uh, usually have like pretty severe gut issues. And once you heal the gut, then you should be able to reintroduce some healthy grains like rice and quinoa and buckwheat and so forth. So my goal is always like try to expand the diet in the long term. And you may need a short term elimination for two, three months where it's more restrictive, but we want to always try to get on the most diverse diet possible, because that's what we need to build the diversity of the microbiome. So in the long run, I think that is the goal. But yeah, in the short term, I think that elimination can be helpful. Um, And I think more people 
thrive on a gluten-free diet and don't need the grain-free diet, which is why even with my elimination diet, the phase one diet that we talked about, I do allow the gluten-free grains because for most people, I feel like things like rice and quinoa are not inflammatory or causing health issues. Sure. So in terms of the protocol, so you have phase one, phase two, and then as you just said, like really the goal is to allow people to have the most diversity and widest range of eating. How do you think about, I guess, going through that and then a person's cure from autoimmune disease versus a remission? Like this is a lifelong, and as we kind of talked about, I suppose at the beginning, it's really preventative as well. Yes, absolutely. So if you don't have an autoimmune disease, this is a healthy way to eat and live to prevent them. And then if you do have autoimmune disease, yeah, we have to distinguish between remission and cure. So cure is pretty unlikely with autoimmune disease, unless it's like super early and not, you know, also not for everyone, but remission is definitely achievable for everyone. And that is where the disease is quiet. You don't have symptoms. You are feeling, uh, you know, really good. And in many cases, it feels like a cure because you're not suffering from the disease or having it impact your daily life. So our goal is to help people achieve remission with the minimum number of medications and to use more like diet and vitamins and herbs and spices. So more natural things that are able to move people towards that remission. So as you think about the future, you obviously just have this book come out, but I'm curious to hear what's next. Like, where do you see autoimmune and, or gut research going? Where will we be in the next three, five years, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, there's a lot of really exciting things that I talk about in the book. One is vagus nerve stimulation. So in the area of technology, you know, rapid growth, um, some devices are already FDA approved, like there's vagus nerve stimulation for seizures. And then these small devices, which is like a pager that you, you know, kind of have on the body, and then they stimulate the vagus nerve that's been studied in rheumatoid arthritis to be really helpful, and also in other types of autoimmune disease. So that seems to really help reduce inflammation through the stimulating the vagus nerve with these devices. Um, And then there's a lot of exciting research in the area of stem cells. So we know that your stem cells um, help regenerate damaged tissue. They're used for injuries or musculoskeletal joint issues, but they also really help with your immune system and helping with inflammation. And there was one study with a stem cell infusion in autoimmune disease, which found that it induced remission for 10 months. And this is an Australian company that's studying this infusion, one-time infusion. So right now, in even in our most powerful medications, they have to be given every two months because uh, even those infusions, you know, they wear out. But this was with stem cells lasted 10 months. So I think there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. And, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on those. Do you think stem cell therapy, like the more everyday common use of it will be in the next three years, five years? Where do you see that mm-hmm. as... Yeah. I mean, it's being used now, Yeah, you know, some of my patients with the chronic like knee issues or chronic hip issues are finding benefit from that's one of the options, you know, there's many others, but if everything else fails, so, you know, that that's being done now. And yes, for sure. In the next five years, I do see stem cells having much wider application. 
at an accessible, more accessible, yes. I guess, yes. people. Yeah, we do need to get at that insurance coverage so that hopefully as we get more research, which is ongoing, then the next step will be getting the insurance coverage so people will have access. All right, wonderful. We're going to move into some rapid fire Q&A. What are your three favorite healing foods? So I do like bone broth. So yeah, it's actually used a lot in Ayurveda, which people don't don't realize. So for thousands of years, you know, they've been recommending bone broth for for gut healing. And then uh, spices. So I think that, of course, turmeric is amazing. But also I talk about like um, black cumin, uh, garlic, ginger, cinnamon, fennel, ajwain. So some of these are maybe unfamiliar to people, but spices have a huge gut benefit and they're prebiotic as well. So they help with their gut bacteria, help with inflammation, help your digestion, and then they help your food to taste better as well. That's definitely something I emphasize. And then third would be all those prebiotic foods, which I, again, I, I really want to highlight those more so than the fermented foods, although both are beneficial. The best advice you've gotten in the past six months Let's see. I think that would be to not take things personally, because that was a very helpful perspective. Usually we think, you know, most people believe that others act uh, and do things based on what they're doing. And this was helpful advice for me to realize that usually it's more about what's going on with them rather than what I'm doing that's responsible for their behavior. That's a great one. What do you wish more people knew about you? Oh, I think probably just about my other interests, like I'm an avid motorcycle rider and really love tennis and, you know, have all these other interests that uh, don't get to <laughs> talk about as much. Or or do, or do you get, do. To, do, yeah, exactly. do you get yeah. to have them in your life as much as you want? Yes. Or Yeah. I mean, in small doses, but uh, I try to, to get them in different ways. Three things that you do to stimulate your vagus nerve. One is cold showers. So by that, I mean, I have a regular shower and at the end, I turn the water cold for about 90 seconds, which was what the research showed is like the minimum effective dose. So 90 seconds of cold water that does do the trick. Um, second is so gargling with salt water. I, I like to do that. And also oil pulling the Ayurvedic practice is, uh, is very beneficial uh, because the vagus nerve is activated by anything in the, that affects your throat. And then finally, I'll mention singing this and especially singing in a group like uh, so this is usually like for me you know at church and it's very powerful they've actually studied that singing in a group for some reason has huge health benefits like it raises your endorphins it boosts your immune system it actually reduces your like uh, perception of pain so people have, have been able to like reduce pain medications through, through this so wow. just fascinating uh but singing is, is especially if you can in a group, if not on your own, that's a is great it as activity. beneficial yeah. if you do it on your own or it's, um, I mean, um, if not you're as, on, but on your still own, beneficial. Yeah, it is still beneficial because you're activating the vagus nerve and, you know, having other, other benefits. So if you're able to do it in a group, sometimes that's also very powerful. Favorite words to live by. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, this was something, I'm not sure where I came across this phrase, but there is perfection in everything. Strive to see the perfection. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a good reminder for me to, especially when things don't seem right, or, you know, I feel like something is is wrong to try to step back and, and see how it could fit into the, the grander scheme. That's a great one. And lastly, what is your number one non-negotiable to thrive on your wellness journey? I think for me, it's really movement because uh, I, I found that to have the biggest impact for me personally. So every day I try to do something, whether it's like weight training or going for a walk or doing some yoga or doing a cardio workout, hiking, you know, just a variety of things, but something every single day uh, that's been like a game changer for me in terms of my health and the way that I feel. Wonderful. Dr. Akil. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. In closing, where can everybody find you and your new book? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah, this was a fun conversation. So best way is through my website, which is drakil.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-A-K-I-L.com. And people can connect with me as well on Facebook, same like at Dr. Akil, also on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Wonderful. Well, everyone go out and get the new book. I absolutely loved it. It was a pleasure having you on today. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining me on Live Purely with Elizabeth. I hope you feel inspired to thrive on your wellness journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review. You can follow us on Instagram at purely underscore Elizabeth to catch up on all the latest. See you next Wednesday on the podcast.